So where to begin with a story, there was a truck driver, and he sat down to eat at an all-night restaurant. The waitress had just served him his meal when three guys riding Harleys showed up and swaggered into the diner. One grabbed the man's hamburger, another took a fistful of up the coffee and began to drink it. The trucker responded with great patience. He calmly got up from the table, picked up the check, walked to the front of the restaurant, put his money on the register, and headed to the door. The waitress watched as the big truck drove off into the night, and when she returned, one of the bikers said to her, he wasn't much of a man, was he? He didn't stand up for himself. To which she replied, he's not much of a truck driver either. He just ran over three motorcycles out in the parking lot. <laughs> you got to love people who have strategic patience, don't you? And when we come to the book of Exodus chapter 1, we see one of the most remarkable examples or periods of the strategic patience of God. We're a people that he has called, a people that he has loved, a people that he has set his own, a nation that he is building, is allowed to be enslaved for over 400 years by a pagan, by a ruthless, and by a godless nation. And the big question you come to in Exodus chapter 1 is, is where was God? Where was God? Now, let me back up a little bit and talk about why the book of Exodus. Why here? Why now? Well, the book of Exodus is central for understanding our freedom that we have in God. Exodus means to draw out or to separate. And it's in the book of Exodus that for the Jews of the Old Testament, it was like their gospel the way we see it in the New Testament. For us, the central defining act of who we are as followers of Jesus is His death, His burial, and His resurrection. We celebrate that here at Crossroads every month with communion, don't we? But when Jesus did the first, the last supper, if you will, or communion as we know it, do you know He was reenacting Exodus chapter 12, the Passover? The very meaning, the very understanding of deliverance of freedom came when the Jews are delivered from Egypt and the, and the angel of death passes over them as they take the bread and as they eat of the lamb and as they take that supper known as the Passover. The roots of that go back all the way 1,400 years before Christ to the book of Exodus. But not only are they delivered from Egypt and from bondage, they're delivered to God. How many of you have seen the movie with Charlton Heston, The Ten Commandments? It's been popular in our culture, but I think it's starting to wane because it doesn't have kind of the, the eye-dropping effects that we're used to in terms of cinematic productions. But when Charlton Heston playing Moses, he goes before Pharaoh and he says those words that are so common that we've heard so often, let my people, what does he say, go. But that's not exactly what's said in the book of Exodus. When Moses went before Pharaoh, he said, let my people go so that they may worship and sacrifice to our God. 
And as we go into Exodus, we're going to see that freedom is not just escaping the chains and the tyranny and the restraints of the things around us that hold us in bondage, though that is part of freedom. It is worshiping God and loving Him above everything else and aligning our lives and our choices and our priorities under God's freedom, which comes from obeying His character is reflected in His law. We're not just saved from the bondage of sin, but we're saved to obedience to God. And that's where freedom really lies. And we're going to explore the nature of, of true freedom and true deliverance as we journey the next three months through Exodus. But that leads us to the question, where was God? Because the book of Exodus starts out with these 400 years of God's people being enslaved, God's people experiencing almost the silence in the aloofness of God. And they are asking that question that you will ask if you've not already asked in your journey of being a follower of Jesus Christ. God, where are you? Why are you so absent? Why are you so distant? Why aren't you responding to my prayer? How come when I come to the worship service, I don't feel you in the way that I once did? Maybe you're a younger person and you believe that God had arranged this perfect relationship for you. You believe that the marriage was going to take place and then it all fell apart and you're asking the question, God, where were you? I was trusting you. I thought you would be there in that relationship and it didn't work out. You work tirelessly for that promotion. You work long into the night. You sacrificed. You were faithful. You did everything right and you prayed and you trusted. And that promotion was taken away from you and given to somebody who's less deserving. And you ask the question, God, where are you? I trusted you. Maybe that tragedy, maybe that hardship Maybe that very difficult circumstance hit you or your family. And now God seems distant and aloof. And you're asking the question, God, where are you? Let me give you this punchline this morning. When we're asking the question, God, where are you? He is setting us up to understand him in a way that's bigger, that is better, that is clearer than we could have ever dreamed or imagined. We're in that place where God seems distant and aloof. He is weaning us away from what we think He is to actually encounter who He really is. How many of you know there's a difference oftentimes? Amen? Amen. Well, let's go through chapter 1 here as we ask the question, where was God in the 400 years of silence for the Jews? And then bring it more into our own home court and ask where is he for us when he feels distant and aloof. Exodus chapter 1. Now, the book of Exodus was written about 1,450 years before Christ came to the earth. Probably within a 40-year period after their deliverance from Egypt, from about 1450 to 1410 B.C., Moses wrote down the core stories and the core uh, teachings and laws that came from the book of Exodus. It's Jesus and Joshua and others who verify that Moses was the author. 
And it begins with the story about Joseph, because that's where Genesis ends. In fact, Moses wrote Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament. And so Exodus begins where Genesis ends, and it's with the life of Joseph. That's very critical. The first thing I want us to see about the absence of God in those 400 years is that if you're in a note-writing mood, God was preparing the Jews to himself. God was preparing the Jews to himself in a way that they couldn't have imagined. My son, he's waited tables. He's been a server and one of the restaurants he's worked at is the Olive Garden. And he was telling the story of one time he was serving at a table and there was this Christian family, a, a young mom, a young dad with a nine or ten-year-old son. And the son asked this question, in fact, which Andrew, I'm telling the story about, used to ask when he was that age. He looked at Andrew and he said, Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Andrew's not used to always being asked that when he's serving tables, but he responded, yes, I, I know Jesus. And they began having this conversation. And then as Andrew served them, the mom and dad said, this, this Andrew, this server, is doing a great job. And because he's doing a great job, we're going to give him a really good tip. And my son like hearing that. That's good news if you're a waiter, you're serving at a table. But then the mom and dad look to the son and says, says, we're going to give him a good tip, but what do we do to a server or to a waiter who does not do a do good job? And the son says, well, mom and dad, you give him a good tip. And, and, and the parents said, well, son, why do we do that? Because that's grace. And why do we give grace? The son says, because that's what God gives to us. He gives us what we don't deserve. And when you look at the story here of the foundations of Israel, the Jews emerging as a nation, you see a story of God's grace that God is developing them into a nation even though they don't deserve it. Look in verse 1, it says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The tribes of Israel are mentioned there. They form the tribes of the states of the nation of Israel. It all began about 200 years before this time, though, when God went to this man named Abram, or Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, and he says, Abram, go, leave your people, leave your country, Leave your land, leave your family, and go to the nation that I will show you. And there I will make you into a great nation, and through your offspring all the nations of the world will be blessed. The thing is, is Abraham and his wife Sarah, they were beyond childbearing years. But after 25 years after that promise, she becomes pregnant, has Isaac. It's an act of grace. It is by the power of God. Now as it goes on, and he has Jacob, and he has Jacob and another son named Esau. They were twins. Esau was born first. They hated each other, and Esau wanted to kill Jacob. And Jacob probably would have been dead except for the protection of God. And it looks like all of this promise was going to fall apart. And Jacob has these 10 or 12, eventually 12 sons. And folks, it is a completely dysfunctional family. 
He has 12 sons by four different wives. And I look at that and I look at it and I say, you know, it's like a dysfunctional Brady Bunch. Just kind of take the Brady Bunch, but just bring the worst together. That's them. If MTV would have been around at that time, they could have followed them with a camera and had to show the real lives of the patriarchs. There was dysfunction, there was backbiting, there was hatred, there was selfishness, there was discord. And you're thinking, is this going to be the foundations of a nation? Remember, Joseph's brothers hated him. He was born the 11th. There was 10 who came ahead of him. Benjamin had not yet been born. And there was something that Jacob did that made his brothers hate him so bad. He gave Joseph what? This coat of many colors to show him, you're my favorite son. The other brothers didn't like that. And so they planned to kill him. They eventually didn't do it. They sold him as a slave. He's taken down to Egypt. And so he goes over Egypt as a slave. And through the grace of God from coming out of prison, he becomes the second in command, the vice president over the nation of Egypt. We pick up in verse 5. It says, The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all, and Joseph was already in Egypt. We could see the map by way of the screen. Jacob and his sons were there in Canaan, the land of Hebron. There was a famine. They couldn't feed themselves. And so they took a journey over into Egypt, into this land, this northern part of Egypt called Goshen. And it's there that they encountered Joseph, who has all of the store grains, who has all of the wealth of this agriculturally productive country. And it's there that he feeds the 70 who are his family, and they will settle there in Goshen, and they will be building, as we'll see a bit later, two areas of this, of this region, Python and Ramses. And they will stay there and they will live there. And they will go from a people of 70 to when they leave 400 years later to a nation of possibly 2 million or 2.5 million people. Verse 6. It says, now Joseph and all of his brothers, and Joseph and all of his brothers and all of that generation died. It's interesting that in the late 80s, an excavator, an archaeologist, a guy named Robert Scheistel, had went to that town of Ramses where the Jews had done their building. And he uncovered this amazing grave, this tomb. It's almost two, two times the size of a regular human that shows that it was a person of royalty. This person was non-Egyptian. It was a Semitic person who came from the land of Canaan in the areas around there. This was a person who had a staff which showed that he had the authority of Pharaoh. It is the only person who has been buried as a ruler in the land of Egypt who was seen as a non-Egyptian. He lived in this town. It dates from the time of Joseph. And guess what else he has on? This coat of many colors. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness. The very thing that became a symbol of hatred. 
the very thing that escalated their anger and their hatred toward Joseph toward the very end of his life is draped upon his body because there has been healing, there has been reconciliation amongst their brothers. And God is doing an act of grace and reconciliation in this family, even as dysfunctional and selfish as it was. His grace overcomes sin. I love the scripture in Romans. It says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Amen. And as we're looking at the book of Exodus, as we're looking at Moses, as we're looking at the patriarchs, one of the things I want to ask you is this. Has somebody done something so bad? Has someone hurt your life so much that it has stopped or thwarted the plan and the will of God in your life? Has somebody done something to you when you look back and say, if they wouldn't have done that, my life would be so much better. My life would be at a different place, at a better place. But I want to ask you if you're saying that, can somebody in what they've done or not done to you stop God's A1 plan in your life? I think as we journey through the book of Exodus, we're going to see clearly that the answer was no for Joseph, no for Moses, and it's no for us as well. Verse 7, it says, But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. As you look in Numbers chapter 1, verses 45 to 46, it appears that there were about 600,000 fighting men So you take with their women, their children, the elderly, there would have been probably at least two million people. And in this time when God seemed absent, he is building a nation that can be transplanted from Egypt to go into a Canaan and establish the will and the law of God for the rest of the nations to see. Well, they're growing, they're building, they're growing more numerous, they're becoming a threat to the Egyptians, and so they begin to enslave them because they are a threat. They want to put the control, the lid on their growth. And so it leads us to truth number two about when God seems absent. Number two, God was separating the Jews from Egypt. God was separating the Jews from Egypt. Verse 11, it says, So they put slave masters over them to oppress them and force labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. They become slaves. Why would God allow his people to become slaves? The people that he loves, the people that he cares for, the people that he adores. Could it be that he didn't want them to fit into Egypt? Could it be that if they were accepted by the Egyptians, that as they were growing, they would have wanted and adopted their worship, their gods, their morality? Could it have been that if they were accepted, if they were approved, if it was said, you know what, you guys become one of us, they would have become like one of them. And they wouldn't have kept their separate identity as God's people in which the law of God could be given and established and carried through to the nations. Maybe there's some wisdom 
And maybe the hardship that they were called to was the very means by which God would exercise His perfect A1 plan. And maybe some of you this morning, as we're looking in Exodus, you're thinking, you know, wait a minute, I don't fit in. I've really tried to become a part of that group. I've really tried to fit in with that class. I've really tried to be accepted at that lunch table. I've really tried to become a part, but it just doesn't work. And maybe you don't fit in because God wants you to stand out. Maybe you can't be put into the mold because God's plan for you is to break the mold. Maybe the plan others have for you is not working because God is strategically designing a unique plan. That's the way it was here for the Jews while they were enslaved and not fitting in with the Egyptians. Number three, God was separating the Jews from complacency. God was separating the Jews from complacency. Verse 12, 13, and 14. Read these carefully with me. It says, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made them live bitter and harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all of the kinds of work in the field and all of their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Basically, they were having a really bad time. Now, you won't see this because we're English readers and we're looking at the English translation. But in the Hebrew, in verses 13 and 14, there is one word that is used seven times. It is the word abad. And abad with its synonyms means work, enslavement, labor. And literally, if you were to read this from the Hebrew and translate it, that wouldn't be good because we wouldn't understand it. But here's what a literal translation would read. It says, They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as workers and made their lives bitter with hard work. And in all of their work, they ruthlessly made them workers, workers. Make sense? Seven times the word abad is used. And in Hebrew thinking, in Hebrew calculation, when something is used seven times, what does it mean? It means fullness or completion. And right here at this place, the Jews are at the place where they are at the height of their frustration. They're at the height of their anger. They're at the height of their discontent with the slavery that they've put, been put under. And because of that, they're at the place where they're beginning to say and to move out of their complacency, good enough is not good enough. I can no longer tolerate this. I'm ready to begin to make the changes, even though those changes will cost me greatly because the cost of staying the same is no longer worth it. Hang right over to chapter 2, verse 23, and look at what they finally cry out to God. In all of their years of slavery, this is the first time that they then cry out to God. And it says, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out in their cry for help because of what? Their slavery went up to God. They finally come to the place where they said, enough is enough. God, I want change. 
God, I want to be different. God, what is all around me? I am no longer content. We are your people. You have called us here. Now, Lord, deliver us. I sometimes ask people, you know, you're in a tough situation. You're in a tough spot. How come you haven't prayed about it? How come you haven't asked God to help you in that tough spot? And people, when they're honest, they often say to me, because I don't want to go through the difficulties of what change in my life is going to mean and what's going to have to occur. Look by way of the screen. It's Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary in inland China during the 19th century. He was there for 50 years. And he gives these wise words. He says, it doesn't matter how great the pressure is. What really matters is where the pressure lies, whether it comes between you and God or presses you nearer to his heart. Isn't that good? And for the Jews, this pressure and this slavery is pressing them near to the heart of God where they are crying out for their deliverance. Why does God put our lives on hold? Why does God sometimes seem silent? Why does God sometimes seem to delay what he wants to do and we seem to be trusting him and calling out to him? You think about a coach in a basketball game. The coach has several options to see his team to victory. And one of the things he'll often do is call a timeout. Maybe the opposition is gaining too much momentum. They're on a shooting streak. And the coach says this needs to stop. And he calls a timeout to cut the momentum. Sometimes as they're playing against the, the other team, the coach can see a weakness in the other team's defense. The team isn't seeing it, so he calls a timeout and says, here's how we need to exploit this. Or maybe his team is just tired, they're wore out, and they need a break, and they need to switch their game plan. The coach has all types of reasons, with all kinds of factors, for all kinds of situations in which he can call out. And he does so according to the flow of the game, so that his team can win. And our God does the same. He is aware of so many circumstances, so many situations, so many particulars. And sometimes he puts our life on hold. Sometimes he delays in his responses. Sometimes he calls a timeout because he is working out a plan that is bigger than you can imagine and that will advance the course of his agenda to see his kingdom flourish here on the planet Earth. Amen? So what do we do? How do we put some shoe leather on this? What does this mean when God seems distant, things seem silent, God doesn't seem to be there? How do we respond in faith during those times? Well, let me give you a couple of encouragements. Number one, when God seems hidden, know that he is still working. When God seems hidden, he is still working. In Exodus chapter 1, if you read through the entire chapter, Guess whose name you'll not see mentioned? God, the Lord. As you read through the chapter, he's not there, at least not verbally. He doesn't appear to be showing up. His name is not mentioned. He doesn't appear to be doing any activities. But let me ask you, is God in Exodus 1? And the answer is absolutely. And you're in that place 
where God doesn't seem to be there. He seems to be aloof. He seems to be distant. You're calling out to Him. You don't feel His presence. Things aren't going for you the way that you want. Let me ask you, though you don't feel it, though you don't see it, is God still there? And the answer is absolutely. And He is absolutely still working out His plan for your life. Because His plan is far bigger than what you can calculate, what you can reason, and what you can figure out with your own puny mind. Somebody has said this, hard times don't erase God's promises, harsh treatment doesn't escape God's notice, and heavy tests don't eclipse God's concern. And with those times when God seems distant, it's those times that we learn to appreciate and to love and better discern his voice. Ruth Calkin, who went through a time of physical illness in her own life, she was a, a poetry writer. And she wrote this in reflection of a difficult time in her life. And she said this, and it's kind of poetic, but I think it is such a true statement. She said, Today, Lord, I have an unshakable conviction, a positive, resolute insurance that you have spoken, that what you have spoken is unalterably true. But today, Lord, my body feels stronger and the stomping pain quietly subsides. But tomorrow, if I must struggle again with aching exhaustion, with twisting pain, until I am breathless, until I am utterly spent, until, I, until fear eclipses the last vestiges of hope, then, Lord, then grant me the enabling grace to believe without feeling, to know without seeing, and to clasp your invisible hand, and to wait with an invincible trust for the morning. Number two, when God seems hidden, he's preparing you. When God seems hidden, he is preparing you. 400 years of the hiddenness of God was preparing the nation of Israel to be a powerhouse in a world-conquering force, and to deliver to the nations Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And if you remember that before Jesus came, after the book of Malachi, there was 400 years of silence. And it was preparing the world for the coming of the Messiah as he would be born in Bethlehem. And folks, when we see in Scripture those periods of God's silence where he seems absent, the pattern is, is he's preparing us for something bigger than we can imagine. Look by way of the screen, Oswald Chambers from his book, My Utmost for His Highest, a great devotional book, which I would encourage any of you to purchase and to read. He says this, has God trusted you with a silence, a silence that has great meaning? God's silences are actually his answers. His silence is the sign that he is bringing you into an even more wonderful understanding of himself. This past month, I've been taking teams of people out. We've been going to Marine City one time a week. We've been prayer walking. And we at Crossroads have been ministering to a particular area in Marine City. And, and so we've been praying and asking God just to expand his love, expand his hope. And, and we're there, we're praying for people. And as the Spirit leads us, we have spiritual conversations and a few weeks ago we had the backpack giveaway at, at, the, at the one office building of this area 
And as I've been doing that, I've had several spiritual conversations. And in fact, this Wednesday, I'm going to be, me and another person, meeting with a man to take him through a Bible study, the stories of hope about Jesus Christ. A man who doesn't know Jesus. And so as you pray, as we've been laboring there, the Holy Spirit's been making inroads. But one thing we do is we have spiritual conversations with people and we hear their stories. We hear what God's doing in their lives, the challenges they face. And I've heard the stories of so many people. I've heard about broken relationships. I've heard about hurting bodies. I've heard about desperate financial difficulties. And as they tell me their stories, I ask them this question. Not always, but quite a few of the times. I said, if God was going to do a miracle in your life today, what would it be? If God were to do a miracle, if God were to do something meaningful in your life today, what would it be? And I'm expecting to hear, well, I'd like to win the lottery. I'd like, you know, something like that. But every time I ask that question, they think about it. They think about it seriously. People who are not following God, and they answer things like this. I would like my heart to be healed. I would like to feel peace. I would like to feel normal. I would like for my relationships to be restored. And I'm looking at people who don't know God and they understand the true nature of what freedom is. It is when we have peace, it's when we have healing in our heart. And I'm humbled by that because they're crying out and they're asking for the things that we should be asking for. Not, Lord, change my circumstances, but God, change me in my circumstances. Not, Lord, make things better, but God, make me better. Not, God, do miracles around me, but God, do miracles within me. And when we're going through those times where God seems distant and aloof, He'll use those times to make us more sensitive to his voice. He will use those times to help us to understand how he's going to fulfill his plan. He will use those times to show us that he's much bigger than we could have imagined. I want to ask the worship team to come forward as we prepare to worship. And the prayer team too as they want to come forward. But Jesus said that I came into this life that you may have life more abundantly. And that true freedom is to know Jesus Christ. Eternal life is to have our lives, our relationship connected with him.